0: The husband ought to tell his wife freely and frequently, I love you. Hopefully there's not too many elbows flying right now. Um, Husbands, if you're getting an elbow, you just, you know what you got to do, pick it up a little bit. I love you. We should not use those words sparingly. And yet, what would happen if I were to Tell my wife frequently and and looking deeply into her eyes with all of the, the passion that I could muster, honey, I love you. But then went on to just kind of quietly refuse to hold her hand. Begin avoiding kisses. Honey, I I love you. I just didn't get you anything for your birthday or Christmas. Valentine's Day. Honey, I really, oh, I love you. But I'm kind of done helping out around the house. And the kids, they were kind of your idea. You deal with them. Now, I love you. I love you so much. I just, I don't really want to talk anymore. I don't want to go on dates anymore. But I love you. Oh, I love you but I spent our vacation money on a motorbike for myself and and, uh, rather than going on a vacation together, I think I'm just going to go spend some time touring around. I I really love you, but I'm seeing other women and in fact, I'm moving in with another woman. How's that going to go over? Right? Not so well. At what point do those words just lose their meaning altogether? I, I would suggest fairly early on in this process. You can say... I love you, with all of this sincerity and and romance behind it. But if your life doesn't back that up, if there's no evidence of that, those words mean nothing. They lose their value completely. And so, to quote one of my formative uh, theological influences of my early Christian life, love is a verb. Anyone else grow up listening to mediocre Christian rap in the early 90s? Yeah, there we go. I'm not alone. Um, it's action. We know that intuitively with a subject like love, even though it has some emotional part to it, and it's, and it's this heart-filled thing, and, and there's some mystery to it, but, but you can't define it by that alone. Love, if it's to mean anything, has to be worked out in Action in real life. And we talk about love pretty comfortably that way. Um, We're pretty accustomed to that. And yet, I think we get hung up and wrongly so and react negatively if we begin to apply that same logic to faith. But that's exactly what James is telling us to do, that's exactly where James is taking us um, through this book. That really is the, the overarching theme of the book of James, um, that the, the, this, this true, authentic faith, though it is in many ways an act of the heart, an act of, of trust, an act of love, it's not just that, it's not just a feeling or, or empty words, but true faith ought to be borne out into real life, into action. And so James has been laying out, this is is what an authentic faith looks like. This is how you can see faith in life. True faith trusts the Lord. It it perseveres through hardships and trials, even grows through them. True, authentic faith hears and obeys the Word of God. It's a a doer of the Word, not only a hearer. True, authentic, genuine faith um, lives out in Service to the Lord, allegiance to him that that looks like sacrificial love for the less fortunate. Looks like keeping oneself unstained from the things of this world and and showing no partiality or favoritism in the church. And so James has been kind of dropping these markers. This is what authentic faith looks like. Here in chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, he kind of hits pause on that. And he asks the question, now what does it matter? What difference does it make? Why is this question important? Why are we so hung up on these marks of faith? So let's take a look at these verses together. Let me read them for us, and then we'll uh, walk through it uh, piece by piece. So uh, chapter 2, starting in verse 14, James writes, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. You see, that person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Would you join me? Let's pray together as we turn to God's word. Father, we need you. God, our minds are dull and distracted. Our hearts are hard and slow. God, would you give us eyes to see? Would you... uh, illumine our minds by your Holy Spirit. And God, would you give us hearts to understand. God, that you would um, be at work in us through your word today. And God, that you would um, that you'd be transforming us, helping us to see um, the reality of faith more clearly, to trust in you, to give ourselves uh, to you uh, new today. God, that you might be honored in it. I pray these things in Jesus' name. So James addresses this question from two different angles. First, he shows um, the futility of an empty faith. Uh, And then later on, he'll go to show the fullness of an authentic faith. And so first, um, verses 14 to 19, the, the futility of an empty faith. James opens with this rhetorical question. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can such a faith save him? So let's let's set set this this up. Here's this this person. I believe. I trust in Jesus. I really trust him. But there really isn't any tangible life. There's no evidence to to back that up. There's no expression of that faith in his real life. I I, I don't love others sacrificially. Um, I I don't really keep myself unstained from the world. No, no. I'm not much of a doer of the word, really. I kind of of do my own thing. I'm kind of king of my own castle. I make my own decisions and go my own way. But I absolutely believe, I absolutely trust Jesus. And so there's this disparity, this statement of faith. He, He says he has faith, but there's no works. There's no action bearing that out. What does that mean? How big of a deal is that? Is that the difference between him being kind of a a mediocre Christian, or uh, the the phrase used to be common, a carnal Christian, and and a true uh, kind of upper echelon Christian? Is this just a a sliding in, in degrees, or is it something more significant? The question is, is it possible for someone to be truly saved and simply not have any evidence of that salvation? Is it possible to have true saving faith and just not the extra kind of bonus, the icing on the cake of works? Now, I want to lay this groundwork here again. I know we we kind of worked through this more in detail um, two or three weeks ago, but I want to touch it again because we need to be on the same page here. James is not denying that we're saved by faith, not at all, not in any way, shape, or form. He, he said earlier that, um, that it is by God's will, uh, chapter 1, verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of all creation. Um, salvation is God's good gift to us, not by works, but by faith alone. Um, the Bible clearly teaches we are sinners against God. He created us and we're his. He is infinitely worthy of our honor and, and respect and allegiance and obedience. And we've rebelled against him. Every one of us has, has gone our own way. We've, we've broken his right and perfect laws. Laws that were not only for our good as, as this perfect guide for the, the fullest, most joy-filled life in this world. But laws that at their core were an expression of the very character of God. And so so to to reject reject his law is to reject reject him himself. himself. And 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 for our rebellion against him, we we deserve deserve death death and hell. Bottom line. That's That's what what we we are are rightly owed. owed. But But God, God, though he is righteous righteous and just, just, he is also loving and merciful and gracious. And 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 so so that's that's why Jesus came. That God could could uphold his glory, um, keeping his justice and his righteousness intact, not not overlooking sin, not just sweeping it under the rug. Sin doesn't go unpunished while still being forgiving and showing grace and mercy and, and forgiveness to the undeserving. And that's what was accomplished by Jesus. That was God himself coming down, taking on human form, living the perfect life without sin, and dying on the cross, taking on himself the judgment that we deserved. He paid that in our place. And so the question is, how do we become partakers of that? Recipients of the forgiveness that Jesus purchased. And and the answer is grace alone. It is God's gift, freely given, without cost. There is no way to earn that. You couldn't even come close. In fact, it would be insulting to God to even try, but rather by faith, meaning we just receive it. Simple trusting in Jesus. There's nothing else to be done but to simply look to him and trust him for it. Paul says in Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves, sorry, not by works, so that no one can boast. So in case you maybe didn't get it, we somehow think we can earn it, he goes on, Galatians two sixteen: yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we're justified, we're made right with God by faith. And so we also have believed in Jesus Christ in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Here's the the hammer. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. There is no way you can earn your way or do the right things or be a good enough person to be justified before God. It is by faith and faith alone. By trusting in Jesus and accepting that free gift, not by works. But then, what is James talking about? Because James James goes goes on on to say, say, verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. And so you see there's this tension here, and people have often kind of pitted James and Paul against each other and tried to make them fight. Um, The reality is there is no contradiction here. As I just showed a minute ago, James absolutely believes salvation is this free gift from God that he does. And if you read the rest of Romans, you'll see Paul constantly talking about the working out of faith. They're not standing face-to-face fighting each other. Uh, They're standing back-to-back fighting against opposite opponents, defending the same truth from different errors and so those whom Paul was writing particularly in Galatia they're saying you have to obey the law you have to do the right things in order to earn your place before God and Paul says no no you can't do it you're saved by by grace through faith alone that's the only way James on the other hand isn't looking at sorry is, is looking at the nature of faith What does true saving faith look like? We're saved by faith alone, but what does that mean? And and the answer is true faith, the kind of faith that actually saves, the kind of faith that that, that, that produces a transformed life. It brings about works. And so that faith that saves, that we're saved by faith alone, that faith is never alone. It's joined by works and, and So Paul is talking about new birth. How does that new life happen? How does it come to be? Maybe even conception. James is talking about the newborn infant. Looking at this supposed infant, we ask, is it breathing? Is there movement? Is there a heartbeat? Is there new life here? New birth comes by faith alone, and that new birth by faith um, brings about life, action. And so you can see James's question here um, at the end of uh, verse 14. He asks, can that faith save him? What faith? The faith that has no works. It's not about if we're saved by faith or not. That's not what James is asking. He assumes that it's about what kind of faith saves. What does that faith look like? Is that the right kind of faith to save? And and so where some are are tempted to say, um, oh, you can have true saving faith, you can be genuinely converted and, and given this new life, but have no evidence of it, have no changed life on the other side, James says, no, that's not true faith, then. If it's lifeless, it's useless. A faith that has not changed you has not saved you. And it's a very serious thing. To claim to have faith but be lacking works, James is saying it's powerless. And it's not that, that faith needs the help of works, but look at what James says, um, he phrases this in, in verse 14, he says, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? He's, he's putting faith there kind of in quotation marks, right? You only say you have faith, and that kind of faith, the faith that brings about no outward evidence, is is not actually faith at all. That empty faith is futile. Jay gives two examples then of what that futile faith might look like and how it might display itself. A few note takers, point one is the the futility of empty faith, and and we're going to move into sub-point A now. So point A is this example of empty works. Sorry, empty words. Get my own points right. Uh, Futile faith shows itself in empty words. Um, Looking at verses 15 and 16, let me read them again for us. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So James uses this illustration of a man who who calls himself a Christian, who who runs into um, a brother or sister, someone from within the family of the church even, and he sees that they're in obvious need of the basic necessities of life. And he says with his mouth, go in peace. He's talking to a bunch of Jews, no doubt. This is shalom. Be filled and have wholeness. I hope everything is, is well for you. This is rich, deep, significant greeting. Even more uh, specific, he says, be warmed and filled. You notice that he kind of detaches himself? He doesn't say, I will warm you and fill you. He says, I hope you get that figured out. Be warmed and filled. I, I hope the best for you. So he, he has these words that that seem like they care, that seem like he loves them, but but just as they turn expectantly to to hopefully receive some, some gift to help them, he's turned away. He's gone. Good luck with that. His words of care are not reflected in reality. They're empty. This is the man who says to his wife, I love you, and then walks away with another woman. Verse 17 starts with the words, so also. That's important. That, that tells us how to relate these two sections, these two passages. It tells us that he's not necessarily saying, if you don't feed the poor, your faith is useless. That's, that's not the point. But rather, just like those empty words of care for the poor without action were useless, so also words of faith without action, are useless. They're of no good. He's, he's showing this, this common example of empty words. We can kind of connect the dots, reminding us that's totally possible. We see that in everyday life where people say one thing, um, but the reality is something else. So that's his first example. A futile faith is seen in these empty words. The second, moving into verses 18 and 19. Futile faith is also seen in empty doctrine. Empty doctrine. This one is a little more insidious. This is a little sneakier. Verses 18 and 19 say this, but someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe that and shut up. So as Jewish writers often did, James kind of brings in this uh, imaginary uh, opponent who who kind of makes the case that he suspects his readers might be making, and he argues against it. And the argument is this, well, everyone has their own personal faith journey. We all have our own experience, James, go figure. His opponent is a millennial, who knew? Um, Each one of us has our own way, right? And so you have works, you go your way. I have faith alone. I'll go my way. It's just personal experience. Don't, don't judge me, James. James's response, okay, prove it. Show it. You say that you have faith with no works. Show me your faith. Let's see it. How do you know? What does it look like? Where is it? Oh, James, you can't see faith. I just believe. Well, you go ahead and try. You try to show me your faith apart from your life somehow. He's asking this uh, incredulously. And I'll show you my faith by my life. I'll show you what I believe by how I live, by what I do. And again, I think we get hung up with talking about this with regards to faith, but, but, but we easily think this way about something like love. Love is more than an action, for sure. It's not boiled down to just pure, cold actions. but it certainly has that as well. And if your supposed supposed love uh, has no action flowing out of it, it's not actually love. No, I will show you my love by spending time with you, by being kind to you, by being faithful to you. That's what love looks like. And so verse 19, um, James gives us a little more insight into this argument from this opponent. You may not show it with action, but, 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 uh, but he counters James again saying, but I believe in God, right? I believe that God is one. I, my, my doctrine is good. I know the right things. I believe the right things. He believes here that, that God is one. And, and James snipes that little phrase very intentionally. Um, that's from Deuteronomy 6.4. Uh, it's called the Shema. Hero Israel, the Lord, our God, the Lord is one. And, and that was, if you know that passage, it's followed then by you're to teach these things to your children and hand them down generation to generation. That was, that was kind of shorthand for Judaism. For, for all that they had, they were to be teaching their kids about who God was was, and so as he kind of grabs that phrase, you believe that God is one, Um, by that he means you have right doctrine, you believe in the right God, you have all of your theological ducks in a row, so that's good, you should have that, you should believe rightly about God, that's important, but that's not faith, there is such a thing as empty doctrine. And there are people who, who know and believe all of the right things in their head. They, they know this Bible inside and out. And, and they, can, they can tell you in great detail all about salvation by faith alone. They just don't have it. It's a different thing. A knowledge of God is not the same as faith in God. You need proof? Well, James says... Satan himself has better doctrine than any of us. He's right. Satan knows the Bible better than you do. He's been around for a while. He's read it a few times. Satan knows who God is better than you do. Have you ever been in God's throne room? Satan has. Look at the opening of Job. He knows God well. Does demons know God and they shudder. Why do they shudder? Because they know they will be damned. They know that the righteousness of God in the end will condemn them regardless of their right knowledge about him. You can say all the right things and think all the right things, but not have true faith. Be careful what you put your hope in. Be careful where you go to find your your assurance and your confidence of salvation. There are wrong places to build that. There, there are faulty foundations upon which you can build your confidence. If you're looking at your own life and wondering, Am I truly saved? Can I be sure that when I die, my sins will be covered and forgiven? And, and I will be with the Lord in paradise. Um, or perhaps you have a friend who's who's doubting and, and unsure about their faith. Where do we go? How do you assess? How do you ascertain what true faith is? And, and I so often see these two things turned to. We ask either, did you say the right words? Do you confess it with your mouth? Did you pray the right prayer? Did you tell God you were sorry? Or uh, we go to right doctrine. Do you believe the right things? Can you recite the gospel for me? Can you tell me who Jesus is and what he did on the cross? Now, Those aren't bad things. Those are good things. We we are probably right to start there. And we could go to somewhere like Romans 10, 9 to back that up, right? Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, period. I'm not arguing against that and James is not arguing against that. That's 100% true. But what does it actually mean? What does it mean, does it mean to, to confess, confess that, Jesus that Jesus is Lord? Does it just does mean to make, make the right, right noises with your mouth? Is it just to, to move your, your lips, lips in the right, right way to make, make those sounds sound to say that Jesus is Lord? Lord? Again, yeah. when we talked about this a few weeks ago. I mean, it would be so, so much easier if I could just, just say, you know, I'll give you 20 bucks if you say the word Jesus is Lord. Uh, Jesus is Lord. Yeah. Ha! You're, you're saved. saved. Did it. Move. Next. Next. We're good. Evangelism, Evangelism gets so much simpler. That's not what it means. What does it mean to believe in your heart? That God raised him from the dead. And and I think again pointing to the resurrection, Paul is saying that you believe that he's the son of God crucified for our sin and raised for our salvation. Is it as one dimensional as just kind of knowing that in my head? Do I just believe that it's true? And, And the answer is no. You know, to confess that someone is Lord has implications, right? Lord means master, ruler. To believe that Jesus is who he says he is, the the word there is pistos, it means faith, to have faith that Jesus is who he says he is, is, is more than just kind of knowing the right facts and having the right truths rattling around in your head. James is helping us drill down on the implications of that. Yes, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, but... But to truly confess that Jesus is Lord means something significant. It means to actually practically make him Lord. It means you you have to actually submit to him, obey him, honor him. If you're not doing that, then he's not actually your Lord and your words are hollow. To actually believe that Jesus is who he says he is means not just kind of this mental ascent to, to bits of information... The demons do that, but to truly trust in him, to put my hope there, to rest on that truth, to let those truths become the guiding principles of my life and how I think and how I live. Anything else is just empty words and, and empty doctrine, and that kind of faith, that, that dead faith without any works, it's meaningless. Not to jump ahead too much, but notice uh, the end of verse 22 it says, Abraham, his faith was completed by his works. Verse 24, uh, you see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's, that's the opposite of what's happening here. Abraham's faith is completed. It's filled up by his works. His, his words here are backed up by action and his, his faith is made visible in his life. And so when James, when James says, says a person, person is justified, justified by works, he's not contending con- against con- Paul that you're saved by works, man, but, but rather but works are a necessary, necessary part of this process of justification. Yes, faith is the, the activating, that's the, the trigger, it's the by, the by faith that we're brought we're into this new life, but whoever's brought into this new life also necessarily will have works, will have A changed life. I can tell you all day long that I can do a backflip right right here on the spot. I can say those words, but they need to be completed. Those words need to be filled up. They need to be justified. They need to be vindicated, proven true. And so until I can actually do the backflip, now some of you are getting excited. This is not a great example. I will not be vindicating those words. Um, But until I actually do the backflip, those words are still in question, right? Those words are still a little bit meaningless. We're saved by faith alone, by trusting in Jesus, but that true faith will vindicate itself, will show itself in time in our lives. And so Jonathan Edwards puts it this way, assurance is not to be obtained so much by self-examination, but by action. We can get so caught up in introspection and spiraling and spiraling down, toiling over this question. Do I really believe? Is my heart here or here? What's going on trying to untangle that? Did I I really mean it when I prayed that prayer? Was that really true? When what we ought to do is ask Do I have faith today that translates into real life? Do I actually live in a way that shows my allegiance to the Lord? Can I look at my my decisions and and my actions and say, this is in keeping with what God has called me to be. I'm, I'm doing it. I'm trusting him. I'm moving forward in this. Don't go spiraling deeper and deeper into this kind of dark pit of wondering and questioning. Try to untangle your heart. Look up. Look first to Jesus To what he's done and what he calls us to and then move forward. Live it out today. Live a life of faith and obedience and and that gives evidence. It gives us something concrete to say, here I am. I am believing. And what does that look like exactly? Well, James moves from this futility of an empty faith then into the fullness of an authentic faith. So this is point two here. Verse 20, he continues speaking to this imaginary objector that he has, and he says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person? He gets a little mean here. He's kind of cutting. You want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith, apart from works, is useless? And then he gives two examples of authentic faith, two examples from the Old Testament about what this faith filled up with action looks like. The first example is that of Abraham. And in Abraham, we see full surrender, full surrender. Look with me at verses 21 to 24 here. Was not Abraham, our father, justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So interesting that James picks the exact same example that Paul uses to talk about salvation by faith alone. Abraham. Abraham who... who, trusted God, who believed God, and it says it was counted to him as righteousness. And Paul says, um, obviously, Abraham was not justified by keeping the law. Do you know why? The law hadn't been given yet. It wasn't there. And so this great patriarch of Israel, counted righteous before God, God himself says so, and lived before the law was given. And so obviously he didn't earn it by obeying God's law. It was a gift by faith alone. Genesis 15, God had promised Abraham that though he he was old and his wife was barren, that he would have a son and that God would make him the father of a great nation. Descendants as numerous as the stars. This ludicrous promise to a man who had given up hope on descendants. And, And God is saying, I'm going to make you the father of Israel, the father of my chosen people. And then Genesis 15, 6, this is the pinnacle moment. It says this, that Abraham believed God and God counted his faith as righteousness. So Abraham was counted, considered righteous, not because he lived a good life, but because he trusted God. God gave him that righteousness. And then years later, God spoke to Abraham again. And he commanded Abraham to take this son, this precious, beloved son, this son that was this this miracle and gift, this son through whom God was going to fulfill this great promise and work out his plan in this world, this son that meant more to him than anything else in this world. And you have to understand, in their culture, your firstborn son is everything. He represents your your estate and your your legacy and, and your wealth and everything is wrapped up in that firstborn son, and God said, Give him to me as a sacrifice. Take him up the mountain, put him on the altar, and kill him. Now we know that in the end, God stayed the hand of Abraham. He he did not allow him to kill his son. But the fact remains, Abraham obediently loaded up the wood and supplies, climbed up the mountain, tied his son hand and foot, placed him on the altar, lifted the knife above the throat of his son. Why? Because he believed God. He had faith. Believing that God would still somehow keep his promise. Hebrews tells us he's believing that even if God had to raise Isaac from the dead, that God would still be faithful. Abraham fully surrendered everything to God. He held nothing back. And Genesis 22.12, as Abraham literally held the knife above his son, God said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing that you have not withheld your son, your only son. Abraham's actions were evidence playing out his faith. Now, God didn't learn anything new that day. God knows the future. God knows the present. He knows the hearts of men. But He's playing out Abraham's faith in the real world. He's putting it on display. And Abraham surrendered all to the Lord. His faith lived out in this reality that, that he would hold nothing back. And, and, and this puts into reality, those words spoken back in chapter 12, that he believed God. It was full surrender. That's what true faith is. It's not empty words. It's not empty doctrine. It's, it's full surrender. God, I'm yours. Everything I have, everything I am, I confess that you are Lord over me. You are my master. And I believe in your promise. And so my life is yours. I surrender all. It's the example of Abraham, this full surrender, and then he moves to a very different example, the example of Rahab. We see this authentic faith shows itself in Rahab in full allegiance, full allegiance. Look at uh, verses 25 to 26. In the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? for as the body apart from the spirit is dead so also faith apart from works is dead so in the same way the same way that abraham was was his faith was filled up and completed by his life his actions was vindicated and worked out in his full surrender rahab's faith is proven true in her full allegiance Remember the story of Rahab from back in the book of Joshua? Um, Rahab was a resident of the land of Canaan, a land so wicked and detestable, God had given them hundreds of years to repent, and they would not. And the time had finally come. God commanded Israel to wipe them out completely, wipe them off the face of the earth. And not only was Rahab one of those wicked people, do you notice what James is so careful to tell us about her? She's a prostitute, Rahab the prostitute. How'd you like that beside your name going down in scripture for all of time? But the story of Rahab the prostitute is a beautiful one. She's this wicked woman among a wicked people. She lived in the city of Jericho um, that stood at the entrance to the land of Canaan. This is the first big hurdle for Israel to overcome the fortress that stands in their way. And the people of Jericho had heard rumors over the last few years of this people of Israel whom God had rescued out of Egypt, that they had walked across the Red Sea on dry land that God provided for them miraculously through the wilderness, that they came to the land adjacent to the land of Canaan and wiped out the kings there and fought mighty battles. And they're terrified. And so two spies are sent out from Israel into the city of Jericho and Rahab ran into them. She had a choice to make. She could have turned them in. Everyone around her would have wanted her to do that. That would have made her a a hero among her people. She'd be fighting for her life and her culture that she knew, keeping her allegiance to that people. But Joshua 2.11 says this, for the Lord your God This is Rahab speaking. The Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. There it is. God is who he says he is. I believe in that God. And actually, I trust that God more than I trust this fortress. He is God in heaven. He rules over this earth. And and she acted in treason against her people and her nation and gave her full allegiance to the Lord. She switched teams. She risked everything. She, she turned her back on her culture, her way of life, everything she knew. No doubt her friends would have thought she's crazy. She, she's become one of those religious fanatics. She's got born again somehow. But her faith wasn't just empty words. She risked her life. She, she brought the, sla- or the spies in and she hid them on her roof as the soldiers came looking through. And she let them down out her window down the city wall And as Israel came and and marched around the city of Jericho and the walls came crumbling down, every resident of that wicked city was wiped out at God's command except the household of Rahab. Rahab the prostitute. This wicked woman from a wicked nation, not, not only spared, but she's welcomed into the people of God. She becomes part of the family of God. And not only that, If you flip ahead to Matthew, she becomes part of the genealogy of Jesus. Like she's in, honored. She believed that God was who he said he was. And acting on that faith, she changed allegiance. I'm no longer running after the preservation of this wicked city and this sinful life. My allegiance is to the Lord. He is God. My life is his because of her faith, lived out in this radical change of allegiance, she, she's brought into the promises of God. I love this contrast. Abraham, our father, he says, the great patriarch to whom we all love and respect, this very wealthy and very honorable man, and Rahab, the prostitute, the Canaanite prostitute. Both come welcomed into the kingdom of God by the same way. Both come by genuine faith, worked out in obedience, lived out in full surrender and a full allegiance to him. That's it. That's the only way. Without that, there's nothing. Faith, trusting in God for real. Let me ask you, where do you stand? Where are you at? Have you maybe claimed to have faith, called yourself a Christian, but when it comes right down to it, there's no actual evidence. It's lacking. You say Jesus is Lord, but you don't live like it. You need to hear James. It's only loving for me to warn you plain and simple that, that those empty words, that empty doctrine will not be acceptable to the Lord on the day you stand before Him and you will stand before Him. Or perhaps you've wrestled with your own assurance of faith. You've been caught in that endless cycle of introspection trying to discern my, my heart. Do I, do I really, really, really believe? encourage you to look outside yourself. And and yes, there is uh, an inward assurance, the the presence of the Holy Spirit in us. I don't mean to belittle that, but this is what James is going after. Look at your life. Look at your decisions and your actions and say, did they fit with what I claim to be true? Ask, "Have have I come to him in full surrender? Have I given myself to him in full allegiance, holding nothing back? Do I actually live as if I do trust him? And maybe you aren't sure. Maybe the the evidence is inconclusive in your life. Or maybe you are sure. Maybe you can say with confidence, no, that's not me. You live your own life, you're your own master. Well, just as God invited Abraham, just as God invited Rahab, God invites you. He says, come as a sinner who deserves judgment in humility and repentance, come to him through Jesus Christ. Trust him. Confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Believe that he is who he says he is and surrender to him. Give him your full allegiance and, and then live that out. Actually, actually, Make that the ruling truth over your life. Come to him and hold nothing back. Now, does anyone do that perfectly? Does anyone do that fully? Can anyone say, my entire life from the moment I wake up to the moment I go to bed is lived in absolute, uh, unfading surrender and allegiance to the Lord? No. Now, that's why we need the cross. That's why we live in the cross. It's not just a where we start and we get rid of past sin, but it's where we come day after day and week after week to the foot of the cross to say, Christ, I need you. Um, I have sinned again. I've rebelled again. Help me. I give myself to you. So we're going to celebrate uh, communion this morning as we close on invite the worship team to come back up remembering and rejoicing in the death of Christ. And, and then also declaring through these symbols, eating of this bread and drinking the juice, that, that he is our life. He's our sustenance. Our hope and our trust is in him and in him alone. And so um, if that's not you this morning, then, then this practice would be futile. It would, it would not be wise. And so um, if your life is not marked by repentance and trusting in him and, and growing in obedience to him, then you just need to sit this one out. You just need to leave the Little cup you got on the way in on the floor, that's fine. We'll pick it up later. Um, And you need to get right with the Lord. You need to come to Him in repentance. But for those who confess Him as Lord today and that bears out in your life absolutely not perfectly, none of us is anywhere near perfect, but we're walking sincerely in repentance, saying, He is my Lord, then join. Take this cup and this bread is this joyful celebration of the life we have in him and and a renewal of that commitment. Lord, I'm yours, 100%. All that I have is yours.